following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. It's incredible how God designs families and brings people together. Uh, There's symmetry and balance in the way God wires together a husband and wife and their children. And I bet you can, for example, in your own family, picture who in your family is the spender and who in your family is the saver. Uh, Don't elbow them, okay? Uh, I bet you can picture who in your family is the planner that knows what's going to happen 18 months from now and who is the free spirit who's fly by the seat of their pants, okay? You know who these people are and God gives us together for each other with some symmetry and balance. So in terms of my family, I bring a very special gift to the table in our family. It's something that was passed down and instilled in me by my Cuban abuelas and grandmother, uh, my Cuban abuelas and mother, uh, and they instilled in me this gift that now I am blessing my family with. It's the gift of overreacting. <laughs> and I have this, this uncanny gift where it'll be something minute and not a big deal, and it'll be dramatic, and I'm sweeping in. I think it's the end of the world, and I need to come in and rescue the situation. That's just my bent. Now, the overreactors in the room, go ahead, raise your hand. If you know, you're self-aware, I'm an overreactor, and it's okay. We're all thinking of who the overreactor in our family is. And in fact, if you can't think of an overreactor in your family, it's probably you. That's why you can't <laughs> think of it. So, but we all, we all have them and it's beautiful. For us overreactors, we just honestly believe an urgent need warrants an urgent response. Our problem is our definition and standard for urgency is really low. And so something small, we kick into high gear and go attack it. Now, In this series, Rescuers, we're going to be highlighting a couple of interesting rescue stories. And when you do some research into the history of the United States Coast Guard, what you'll find are a series of rescue missions uh, that are complex, dramatic, and urgent. I want to share with you one such rescue mission that took place uh, where the need and the situation was so urgent. uh, It's often characterized by some as the most complex rescue mission the Coast Guard has ever had to uh, complete in its history. It was Easter morning. 2008, not that long ago. It was early before the sun came up. It was the Bering Sea just outside of Alaska. The ship was about 120 miles away from port and the Alaska Ranger, this about 180 foot fishing vessel, starts taking on water and threatening to to sink. So the captain, Pete Jacobson, issues this mayday call, reaches out this distress signal and says, we're going down, we have water coming into our rudder room. And there's a Coast Guard team that's stationed and on standby every year during fishing season because the Coast Guard knows the seas in the Bering Sea at this particular time of year can be between 20 to 40 feet seas. And so on this particular evening, it was 20 foot seas. The water is 12 degrees Fahrenheit. And the 47 fishermen who are aboard this ship had to abandon ship. About half of them made it onto a life raft or to life rafts and the other half were forced to jump into the open ocean. So these men in their waterproof suits fighting for survival, water leaking in, some of them uh, bound together, arms linked, trying to survive together while they awaited for the Coast Guard to show up. Others of them were not able to link up and were quite literally alone in the middle of 20 foot seas in 12 degree water. Every single second that went by made the situation more and more urgent. On that particular 
early morning, the Coast Guard was able to fulfill their mission and save 42 out of the 47 uh, fishermen who were a part of that accident, a part of that sinking ship. Uh, among the five men who passed away were the captain and the first mate who were the last to leave the boat, who were the last to jump ship and didn't make it. Now that rescue mission, in that case, it's very clear the need that was created, the situation warranted an urgent response. In fact, when you read stories of it, the men who were on standby, who were a part of the Coast Guard, the team of four that flew in the helicopter, that went down, the rescue swimmer and the pilot, co-pilot, flight mechanic, these four individuals were playing Xbox when they heard the Mayday call. They heard the Mayday call, dropped everything they were doing, geared up, got ready, and made a beeline to the side of the sinking ship and were able to save 42 of the 47 men. Over the course of the next few weeks, what we're going to be doing as a church is we're going to be issuing somewhat of a mayday call. We're going to be issuing and sounding an alarm and saying there's a need right here in our backyard. There's a need in our city that we can do something about and it's a need that is near to the heart of God. And if we cooperate together and link arms together, we can respond urgently, prayerfully, and strategically to bring about lasting change and transformation in this area. And in the book of Zechariah, in the seventh chapter, the prophet shares with us some of the things that are near to God's heart and the obstacle that would keep us from being able to meet these needs. In other words, we're going to see in Zechariah that God has a heart and a bent. He values and cares for the vulnerable. That God is a rescuing God. He is on a mission. He chases us down like we sang. That God is a rescuing God. He sends us out as rescuers, but there's an obstacle that would keep us from being able to engage on the mission that God has us. There's, there's something standing in our way, and Zechariah 7 is going to show us that it's probably not what you think. And so we need the overreactors among us to respond to the need and realize this is a big deal that warrants an urgent response. So look with me, Zechariah 7. Listen to what the prophet says. A messenger sent from God. Here's what it says in chapter 7, starting in verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regemelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Now let's pause there. We were just given a series of dates. Let me set this in context for you. Uh, we find out that this is the ninth month, the month of Kislev. That corresponds to the time of November, December. It says it's the fourth year of King Darius. King Darius was a Persian king. Uh, after the reign of Cyrus, Cyrus helped free God's people from exile. Uh, if you can think back in 586, about 70 years before this, the temple in Jerusalem was completely destroyed. God's people were taken into exile in Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, oppressed and put the, the, the people of God under his thumb. And so they're in exile in Babylon. Meanwhile, this Persian kingdom rises up, defeats the Babylonians, and the Persians start releasing the people of Judah back to their lands. And so the people start inhabiting their lands again. God's people move back to Jerusalem, back to the cities of Judah, and they start the process of rebuilding. They rebuild their homes. They start rebuilding the temple. They're gonna start rebuilding the walls around the city of Jerusalem. 
And it's in 518 BC that these events take place. Some men from Bethel, it's a city about 10 miles north of Jerusalem. Some men from Bethel travel with an entourage to seek the favor of the Lord. They came to inquire of the Lord and seek his favor. What this likely means is that these two men, Regemelech and Sherezer, they come with an entourage of people, a series of sacrifices that they're intending to offer before God, series of offerings to offer, and they're coming and they have a question. They go to the spiritual leaders, the priests and the prophets, and here's their question. Should we go on fasting and afflicting ourselves and mourning and weeping as we have in years past on the fifth month. So they're in the month of Kislev, the ninth month. They're getting ready for the upcoming fifth month in the next new year. And they're wondering, should we weep and fast and pray? Now, here had been their practice. For 70 years since the temple had been destroyed on the fifth month, the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar on the fifth month. And so every year on the fifth month of the year, they set apart that year to fast and pray. And they would weep and mourn the loss of their temple and they would seek God and they would go without food so that they can concentrate their time praying, asking God to do something about their situation. Well, now they've moved back to their cities and the temple of Jerusalem is starting to be rebuilt. And so they're seeing this take place and they ask a reasonable question. Now that the temple is being rebuilt, now that things are starting to move forward in a positive direction, do we still need to fast and pray? And should we still weep? And I want you to see what happens next. It's like, a, it's almost like in, in that show, Whose Line Is It Anyway? There's a sketch. It's an improv show. There's a sketch where it's called Questions Only. And there's a whole conversation that's had and all you can do is ask questions. You're not allowed to give an answer. Every time a question's asked, you respond with another question. Oftentimes, God engages in this where somebody asks God, somebody asks Jesus a question and Jesus doesn't give an answer, he gives another question. And oftentimes, what God is doing when he responds to a question with a question is he's exposing something in the heart of the questioner that's saying you're actually asking the wrong question. And so listen to what God says. He doesn't just give them a question in response, he gives them three questions. So here's what he says. Look at verse four. It says, then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities and her, around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? So God responds through the prophet Zechariah by issuing the series of three questions and he asks them, you know, they ask a very honest question. Should we continue fasting? Should we continue weeping and mourning? And God says, hey, these 70 years that you've been doing this on the fifth month and the seventh, you've been doing all sorts of outward actions of religious faithfulness. Fasting and, and weeping in response to that situation is, is, is a good response. But God says and asks them, all those years, was it for me that you fasted? Or was it really for yourself? He says, all, all those years, the seven years, the fifth month and the seventh, all of that activity, was that really for me? And then when you eat, do you eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves as well? And then he asks them the question, if 
the situation when it was prosperous in Jerusalem and everything was great and they were in the land, how they behaved then, God starts to call them out. And look at what happens next in verse 8. God then gives them the dagger. Look at what it says. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn ear and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus, the land that they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. So Zechariah here actually quotes from some of the former prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah in chapter 58 makes this prophetic word visible to his people. Isaiah says, similar to this language, render true judgments, care for the widow, the sojourner, the poor, the fatherless, care for the most vulnerable among you. Do not devise evil against each other in your heart. Isaiah and Zechariah call out phony exterior religious activity and sacrifices. And God makes the statement over and over in scripture, I delight in obedience more than sacrifice. And so here, God calls his people out for their self-seeking, self-righteous fasting. And he calls them to what he truly desires, what is near to his heart. He says, care for the vulnerable, show chesed, show his mercy, show his kindness and love to the people around them. God called them to this. Messenger after messenger was sent. And then he makes a statement, as I called out to you and you would not hear me, So now you're calling out to me and I will not hear you. God makes the statement, how can I show favor and blessing? How can I command my favor and blessing in the opposite direction of what I have already said I will bless? He called out to them. He showed them his ways. He said, you want favor and blessing. You want my hand. Here are my ways. And they turned a deaf ear. Says they turned their hearts diamond hard. Some translations say hard as flint. They didn't want to hear it. And so God scattered the former generation. He sent them among the nations. And as a result, their cities were left desolate. It was April of 1963. And it was Birmingham, Alabama. And at the time, 1963, Birmingham became the epicenter of the civil rights movement. And at the time, Martin Luther King Jr. was there organizing a series of protests in what was the most segregated city in America at the time. And so in Birmingham, Dr. King is organizing efforts and mobilizing protesters, and he gets thrown in jail. And while he's in prison, Dr. King receives a letter from pastors and ministers, from fellow Christian leaders. And they write Dr. King this letter, and in the letter, they express to Dr. King, they say, we empathize, we sympathize, and agree with what you're doing. We agree with your cause. We understand what you're trying to do. We're for civil rights as well. We just disagree with your methods. 
We don't think that the peaceful protests you're organizing, the way that you're mobile, we don't think that this is best for our society. And so they wrote objecting to Dr. King about some of his ways. And so then from his jail cell, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. penned what is one of the most famous pieces of American history, his letter from a Birmingham jail. It's a timeless document that's been quoted and quoted and quoted in the decades since. And from his jail cell, one of the things that he said was this. Listen to what he said. He said, there was a time when the church was very powerful, in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. So Dr. King argued that the role of of the church in a society was not to serve just as a thermometer that complained when things got too hot or too cold. That the role of the church in a city, in a nation, is not just to sit by and complain and bark out loud when things happen that we don't like. But he said God gave the church a mission in such a way that the church is intended to be a thermostat that sets the tone and temperature in the room. That when the presence of Jesus enters into a city or community, that justice and righteousness rolls down. That God's good news, his gospel, sets prisoners free and lifts up the vulnerable. That this is what Dr. King was fighting for. Jesus, our Lord, said it this way. He said, you are the light of the world, the salt of the earth. It's the nature of light to transform a space that is dark. God has called us to be change agents, to be thermostats, not thermometers. And in Zechariah 7, the call, the call is to be a representative of God's mercy and justice in a community. To care for and lift up those who might otherwise be looked over. And Zechariah also exposes a problem that's standing in our way. There's something that would keep us content being thermometers complaining when things happen we don't like. There's a deadly poison that's easy and tempting for us to drink and to consume and take root. Zechariah calls it out and it's probably not what you'd think. Zechariah calls out and in the ministry of Jesus, what you see him most consistently call out. Zechariah calls out empty dead religion. He calls out religious activity that's full of all sorts of exterior signs of devotion, full of busyness, and yet a complete lack for the Father's heart. A complete lack of love that mirrors the love that God has shown us. And so what Zechariah 7 does is it really gives us an autopsy of dead religion. If you think about what an autopsy is, it determines the cause of death of an individual. And here in Zechariah 7, we have an autopsy with some causes of death. What is it that takes a vibrant faith that ought to be life-giving? What is it that renders that dead? And Zechariah calls that out. Look at this uh, with me. We're going to look down at verses 3 through 5 here in a moment. But here's the first cause of death in dead religion. The first one is a preference for ceremony over substance. A preference for ceremony over substance. Look at verses 3 through 5. It says, saying to the priests, this is the messengers of Bethel, Sherezer, and Regemelech, they say to the priests of the house of the Lord and the prophets, should I weep 
and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for these so many years. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? So remember, these men come to entreat the favor of the Lord. They want God's blessing. They want his favor. They've got all these sacrifices they've prepared. They've traveled miles. They've made plans. They've got their entourage with them. They've come on a mission to seek God's favor and blessing. And God calls them out that there's these two realities that are true at once and they seem to be at odds with each other. These individuals have been fasting and weeping. And just to define our terms, when we fast, uh, fasting is a beautiful gift that God has given us. To fast is to set apart time where we're going without food to say and proclaim, more than my body needs food, my soul needs God. And so fasting is a way for us to add some desperation to our prayers, to us, for us to seek God as our stomach grumbles with hunger. It's a cue and reminder that we need God, that we hunger for him more. Fasting is a good thing. Weeping, especially in the Old Testament, it's a pattern of God's people. After a tragic event, an appropriate God-honoring way to respond to that is this uh, very purposeful season of mourning, a season of grieving the loss that they experience and casting their cares on God. These are wonderful things. To fast and to pray and to mourn and ask God's blessing, that's a wonderful thing. But this was happening and taking place. All this religious activity and ceremony was taking place. Meanwhile, the poor in their midst were being exploited. That word there when he says, do not oppress. The widow, the sojourner, the fatherless. That word oppress is a word that carries with it the idea of exploitation and taking advantage of. So they're fasting and praying and full of religious ceremony and activity. They've got more sacrifices ready to go. They've traveled a long way to offer these sacrifices and offerings. And the poor and the widow and the sojourner, the vulnerable in in their midst, are not being cared for. They're being taken advantage of. They're seen as people to be gained from. And God calls them out and says, how can these, these two things be so? This is dead empty religion that is full of activity and prefers ceremony over substance. That's the outside on the exterior. It's a carcass of faith with no life in it. And the scary thing is, it's possible to be a church-going person, to not miss a Sunday. It's possible to pray and fast and memorize books of the Bible and still not share the Father's heart. It's possible to be in this place where we say we want God's favor, but we neglect God's ways. And we have to ask the question in this position of hard-heartedness, we have to ask the question, have I really been seeking God? Have I been seeking the Lord? Because if I've been seeking the Lord and his heart, then why isn't my heart reflecting his? So he calls them out on their preference for ceremony over substance. It's a cause of death. And maybe some of you are here and you've been burned. Maybe you're giving church a shot again, recently at Easter or today for the first time in a while, and you're giving 
God a chance again, but you've had some experience with people in your life who are full of religious activity, but are just not nice people. Maybe you have someone in your workplace that their life is full of religious activity and you know they've got the bumper sticker and they talk about it, but yet they treat you like you're dirt. And that empty religion that's repulsive to everyone is more repulsive to God. He calls them out. He says, as I called to you and you would not hear, so when you call to me, I will not hear. It says, great anger came from the Lord. So it says in Zechariah, it shows us that preference for ceremony over substance is a deadly toxin to our faith. The second cause of death that Zechariah brings to light is a hardened heart that tunes out the voice of life. A hardened heart that tunes out the voice of life. Look down at verse 12. Here's what it says. It says, they made their hearts diamond hard. It's about as hard as you can think. Diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. Their hearts became diamond hard, lest they should hear the words of the Lord. Zechariah almost makes it seem as though if they would have just heard God's word, the word that's powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, if they would have heard it, then they would have been forced to consider what God has to say and his authority over their lives. But they, like little children, stuck their hands in their ears and said, la, 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 la. Not listening. And with diamond hard hearts, they closed themselves off from the voice of life. It's a scary place to be when God's voice of life becomes to you an unbearable screech to where when you enter into a space and God's word is proclaimed, your reaction is not, okay, Lord, I trust that your word is good, that you intend to show me your ways and that I wanna submit and surrender my life to you. It's a scary thing when we enter into a space and our reaction is closing our ears, hardening our hearts and excusing as to why this doesn't apply to you. And our hearts become diamond hard. I want you to picture right now, you can't see it, but right now all around you, there are radio waves right around you, crashing into you, bouncing off of you everywhere at different frequencies. All around me, there's radio waves happening everywhere. And if we had a radio and you tuned it to the right frequency, you can receive the message and hear the message that's being communicated and transmitted at that frequency. And it's almost as if we have in us, we have this tuner, a spiritual tuner. And God's voice could be in our very presence. His word could be right there being communicated loudly as it was to these individuals that God sent prophet after prophet, messenger after messenger. It's possible to be in the presence of the voice of life and tune it out and turn a deaf ear and have a hardened heart and miss the favor and blessing that you claim you seek and that I claim I seek. So God calls them out. He says, your preference for ceremony over substance and your hardened heart that has completely tuned out my voice has rendered you dead. Spiritually dead. Now as followers of Jesus, for those of us who are Christians here at our pilot campus listening online, for those who are followers of Jesus, our temptation is to look at the needs in our world to look at the challenges in our, our nation, in our cities, 
and to point a finger and say, well, the problem is out there. The problem is atheism is on the rise. The no religious affiliation is on the rise. And when we come to the scriptures and we see the harshest words that God reserves, the harshest words that Jesus has in the gospels, the resounding message of the prophets is that oftentimes the biggest threat to a flourishing city and a thriving community is not active atheism, it's dead religion. It's those that claim the name of Jesus, those that claim to know God, yet have no heart that mirrors his, that see vulnerable as ones to profit from, that sees the needy as ones to overlook. When God says to them, listen, How can you fast and pray and be full of ceremony and activity? How can you be that religious and yet miss my heart? So Zechariah 7, it gives us this autopsy, but it also gives us the opposite. It gives us a recipe for life-giving faith. It gives us, it shows us what life-giving faith does look like. And it's to mirror the love and mercy that God has extended to you. That's his desire for us that our lives would be a reflection. That's what it means to be an image bearer of God. Genesis chapter one and two, we are made in the image of God. God intends for us to be a mirror and a reflection of who he is. And so the calling God has placed on his people is I have shown you chesed, I've shown you mercy, steadfast love and faithfulness. I've shown you loving kindness. Now you reflect that to the world around you. Look at verses nine and 10 once more, one more time. Here's what he says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments. That means in your courts, in your law administration, render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. That's that word chesed. Show the kind of love that God has for you to others. Do not oppress or exploit, take advantage of the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner or the poor and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. This is God's heart. And what this generation here in Zechariah 7 missed and forgot is that this was their story. They were once vulnerable exiles. They were once the oppressed ones in Babylon. And God set them free. And they came back to their cities and what do they end up doing? Neglecting the vulnerable. Oppressing and taking advantage of the needy. They moved back from their exile and went back to business as usual. What was their identity in generations before? They were slaves in Egypt. Over and over when you read the Old Testament of the Bible, God over and over again reminds them, you you were once slaved in Egypt and I redeemed you. Over and over it's like this echo, you were once enslaved in Egypt and I brought you out of the land of slavery. I redeemed you and rescued you from that. So the question is, how can those who have been rescued from their vulnerability and being oppressed, how can they go on to oppress others and all the while be seeking me and fasting and praying? You see, the message of the gospel is that God sent his son Jesus who came and traded places with us and Jesus became vulnerable. The son of God entered into human history. Jesus Christ lived among us and he faced oppression. He was beaten, he was tortured, he was shamed and mocked. He was left alone. And he dies as an outcast 
experiencing the ultimate form of being forsaken. And Jesus becoming vulnerable. Jesus, the rich one, emptying himself, impoverishing himself so that through his poverty, we might become rich in the experience of heaven and relationship with God. And so if Jesus has set us free in that way, if Jesus has come and rescued us from our place of vulnerability, how can we not be agents of justice and mercy in our city? One of the things we say around here quite often is that we've been rescued to rescue. That Jesus, the ultimate rescuer, came down and in the most urgent and dramatic way rescued us from our spiritual, from our spiritual need, rescued us from death. And he lifts us up from death and then he sends us out with him on a mission to be rescuers. We've been rescued to rescue. This is the gospel. This is the good news. We get to join Jesus in being agents of reconciliation. In being those who stand for justice and righteousness and mercy and love. And so the recipe for life-giving faith is to simply mirror the way God has treated us. God is not so much calling us to be and do some, some, something completely different. God is instead calling us to act out and live according to the identity he's already given us. We are redeemed people who have been set free. And so God invites us. Now go live like that. Go live as those who are agents of justice and mercy. And so the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor... This is a, a quartet, that group of four individuals, those who have no husband and in antiquity would have extreme difficulty making ends meet and providing for themselves. Widows who were often overlooked, the fatherless, orphans who didn't have parents uh, who, who, could, who could provide for them, orphans who didn't have an inheritance to take themselves, those who were sojourners and traveled through the lands that God had given to his people, who were immigrants and didn't have family around, those who were poor. God said, I want you to give special care to them and do not oppress them. Do not exploit them. They are to be lifted up and cared for. And Zechariah issues this resounding call for us to live out our identity as God's children, our identity as redeemed people. And so, inevitably, with a, a chapter of the Bible like this, the question then becomes, okay, I, I see how that would make sense, that if God has loved us in this way and shown us such mercy and stepped in in our vulnerability and rescued us when we were needy, how we should go and do likewise. But what does that actually look like? What am I supposed to do? How do I do this? And over the next few weeks, we're gonna be talking about ways that we can do this. And in particular, starting next week, we're gonna share a way corporately that if a church like ours, what would it look like if a community like our church, like West Pines Community Church, linked arms and saw an urgent need in our community among the youngest generation? What if we saw this urgent need and responded in an urgent way and linked arms and said, as far as our backyard in our city, we are going to show mercy and we are gonna show kindness to the vulnerable and needy. We're gonna lift up those who would otherwise be overlooked. We're gonna be a thermostat in our city. But for today, I wanna, for a moment, just have you consider, not corporately, what we'll do linked arms. I want you to just think of your individual spheres. Think about what you're gonna do tomorrow when you wake up. The office you'll step into, the classroom you'll be in, the home you'll be in with your kids. I want you to think about that environment that you're gonna be in when you go back to your workplace. 
What does it look like to be an agent of mercy and justice to mirror the love and mercy God has shown you? Well, it starts by asking this question. God, with the influence and resources and position you've given me, how can I steward this? How can I steward this to show the people I lead, the people around me, the people on my team, that as for me, I don't serve King Prophet, I serve King Jesus. As for me, I don't see my coworkers and my team that I lead as labor. I see them as people made in the image of God, trusting that God will bless businesses that bless his ways. Lead in such a way where, whether you're an entrepreneur or a manager or a coworker, whatever your role is, when you step into your space, that it's abundantly clear to the people around you that you serve King Jesus who has shown you such mercy. And in different environments, it looks different. There are some restrictions on what you might be able to say or not say. But there is no restriction on valuing people and lifting them up and caring for them. I was amazed uh, just a few weeks ago, I had the chance to go visit the workplace of one of our, our church members, a gentleman who's a manager of a large plant, a couple hundred employees, and to see his operation and to travel around him on a little golf cart and to see, and to see name after name him talk about, hey, how's your family? And to talk to these individuals who are operating this machinery and he'll walk up to them and they'll stop their work and he'll check in on them. And I'm just watching and observing this gentleman know his employees, know their stories, know about their families and have a heart of concern for them as people. And I was just blown away to see that. So rare. What would it look like if followers of Jesus in our city carried that kind of care, the mercy and love that Jesus has shown us into our workplaces, to where people know we care about them. They're not labor, they're people. And so what would it look like for educators, those who are gonna be going into a classroom or a school front office tomorrow, what would it look like as educators to step in among a young generation where if we're honest, there are some children who go to school and that's the safest place and the best part of their week. It's the moment they look forward to the most. School is a good place. It's where they get their meals. I want you to think about the children whose families, their parents are, are working multiple jobs just to try and make ends meet. Or children who's who have families and parents who don't give the proper attention to their children that they should. You are on the front lines. You are on a mission field to be able to care for and extend the love and mercy of your heavenly father to this next generation. Kids ministry workers, tribe leaders in middle school ministry, high school ministry, God has positioned you. How are you stewarding that position and influence with those young people to show they matter? That kid that's a disruptor, that kid that's difficult, that one that's constantly getting in trouble, that student who their parents sent an email because this happened, how are you responding to show them the care and love that God has shown you? Let's be agents of justice and mercy. Maybe some of you are in industries or workplaces where exploitation is the norm. That the way you make a sale and the way that you operate and you survive is by taking advantage of people. What would it look like for you in that industry to be a thermostat? To change the pattern and to change the temperature in that industry and be the kind of person that says, no, as for me and my life, I will serve the Lord and be an agent of mercy and justice in those 
spheres. Here's the question I want us to wrestle with. The question is this. Will I take up my calling as a rescuer or will I settle for merely acting religious? Will I take up my calling as a rescuer or will I settle for merely acting religious? Am I gonna be content filling my schedule with religious activity or am I gonna seek the heart of God? Am I gonna pray and fast and seek him and ask for his heart and ask for his strength to empower me that when I go to my home or to my place of work or my classroom that I go there as his ambassador there. There are some students and college students here who are right now on a trajectory moment you're deciding something that's gonna shape the rest of your life. There are some re newly retired folks in here who are right now at a juncture in your life where you're setting a trajectory. There's this freedom and openness. For those who are college kids, you're deciding what major am I gonna go in? What career am I gonna pursue? For those who may be recently retired, how am I gonna spend my time? Here's a question worth asking. Rather than asking what will make me the most money, what will be easiest for me, it's worth asking the question, where is the space that given my influence, given my gifting, given my passions, where is the space where I can be the best representative of the kingdom of Jesus? Where can I demonstrate light in dark places? Where can I go and set the tone and temperature in an industry? That's a good question worth asking. And trust that God will provide and God will provide the resources and he'll take care of all the rest that all the rest will fall into, the, into place if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. And so with this call in mind, will we take up our calling as rescuers or settle for merely acting religious? I wanna invite you next week, do not miss. Next week is gonna be a profound moment in the life of our church where we share how we together linked arms can do something corporately to make a difference. But this week, don't miss the chance. Don't miss the call to when you step into your sphere, your home, classroom, workplace, wherever you go tomorrow, don't miss the calling that you are God's representative there. You're his light. He's called you to change the temperature there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you love us and have demonstrated such kindness towards us. I pray, Lord, that right now, if there's anyone in this room who has never trusted in you, who has never received your mercy, Lord, right now that you would speak to their hearts, whether they're sitting right here in this room in our pilot campus, or if they're listening online or on a podcast months from now, whatever the situation, that right there where they are, that you would tap them on their heart and remind them of their spiritual need and poverty. Remind them of their need for you, that they're vulnerable and that you have come down to rescue us. And if that's you, just right there where you are, you could just call out to God and say something like this to God in your heart. You can say, God, I need you. Would you rescue me? I believe you came and lived perfectly, Jesus, and you died in my place. And I believe you rose from the grave. I turn from living my own ways and I turn to you, Jesus. Father, I thank you that you did not leave us alone in our place of need, but you stepped down. And when we were in our most desperate state, you rescued and redeemed us. You set us free, you lifted us up, you have shown us mercy. So Lord, it's our prayer that we would be a good mirror 
that for the world around us, that they would know that we love people because our God loves people. That we're agents of mercy and justice and grace because that's who our God is. And that in every encounter, every opportunity that we would communicate value and purpose, that we would communicate that you care for the least of these. So help us to humble ourselves. Help us to mirror and reflect your heart. We need your heart, Lord. And thank you that you've commanded your favor and your blessing right there. That's where true, joyful life is. Help us to live and align ourselves there. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.